Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We hope that you're having a very good holiday season. Uh, In this episode, we have the first part of a two-part Christmas special that we did, I think it was last year, uh, for this podcast, and we're rebroadcasting it now because tis the season. So we hope you enjoy uh, this part one, and then we'll be releasing part two very shortly. So enjoy. Thanks. Welcome to OnScript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblicalworld. Welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is part two of our Christmas special on the archaeology of Christmas with Kyle Keimer and Chris McKinney. We hope you enjoy this episode, and we will catch you in the new year. Welcome back, OnScript Biblical World listeners. Today we have part two of our Archaeology of Christmas discussion. I am Kyle Keimer, and I'm joined today by my my interviewee slash co-host, Chris McKinney. And we're going to be picking up where we left off last week and delving into more of these traditions around Christmas, some more archaeology. But we're also going to really delve into the text today, uh, because really a lot of the traditions we have around Christmas come from specific readings or interpretations or translations of the text. And so we really want to touch on a a number of these issues and also just go a bit deeper and and draw some connections. And Chris has some really great, um, I think, big synthesis type points that we're going to draw out. So uh, good morning, Chris. How are you? Good morning. And and more importantly, Merry Christmas, Kyle. We're, We're a couple days before Christmas and I'm excited. I mean, I have young kids and they're all excited counting down the days towards Christmas. In fact, I talked to one of my, my sons this morning and the oldest one told me that, you know, we're four days or five days for whatever it is from Christmas. And I said, well, that means we're 370 days from next Christmas. And my youngest son said, how do you know that? And I said, it's, it's, it's math. It's math. Um, and so uh, it's, it's an exciting time of year. And um, to, to get into these these kind of texts that we all, uh, at least those of us who grew up celebrating Christmas and and um, trying to understand the historical as well as the biblical background that we're all looking at. And what I find exciting about it as someone who's interested in archaeology, geography, um, and history, which is you know the point of this podcast, is that these types of texts which get read and overread and become liturgized, um, how they often don't say what you think they say, um, and you often miss a lot of things that are going on in the background that are very interesting and um, more importantly, I think would have been very relevant to an original uh, author and an original audience who would have picked up on a lot of these things who, who know the Old Testament. And so, um, I, I think one of the first things we want to do today, though, is talk about um, the, a little bit more about the archaeology of, of Bethlehem, because we, we left off last time thinking about the, the tell that is at Bethlehem, and there's not a lot to, to see there. It's, it's essentially directly under the, the Church of the Nativity. There's a, an Iron Age site there. There's a Roman period site. There's Byzantine remains. But the main archaeological um, part of the site is the uh, is the church of the nativity, which is a fantastic church, 
And I believe Kyle has some things for us about the, the traditions associated with, with, this, with this building. Yeah, uh, that's right, Chris. And, you know, one of the things with our traditions, and we, we've talked about this a number of times, we, we talked about this with the archaeology of Easter and the whole location of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is when do we have good traditions and when do we have other traditions? And, you know, oftentimes we have to meld together the text and the archaeology. And in the case of Bethlehem, we're really a bit hamstrung because we don't have much in the way of, of archaeology. And so we really have to rely to a certain degree on the text to evaluate some of the the traditions that have arisen. And of course, if you go to Bethlehem today, number one, you're going to want to stop at Stars and Bucks, which is a fantastic little rip-off coffee place there. So you can get your Stars and Bucks. Not just a kind of rip-off, a direct yeah. rip-off. All <laughs> yes, they the added logo. was an ampersand yeah. um, between, star, between Starbucks and Kept the Lady. Uh, good point. Good point. Yeah. So get some coffee there. Head up to uh, Manger Square, the Church of the Nativity, and what you're going to see is a very old structure. And you might wonder, well, okay, what what is the tradition that goes back behind this location? And this is one of these instances where we have some really interesting details that suggest that the tradition is very old, and the location that you're looking at and that you'll experience when you go into the Church of the Nativity really has some historical credence. And one of the the, the most telling thing. So again, archaeology, um, we're lacking a lot of the material. We know that there are, are tombs uh, in this area. We know that there are caves. There's a cave under the Church of the Nativity. But there's a real telling tale in Jerome, who's writing in the, what, 5th century, 4th century. And he says that following the Second Jewish Revolt, the so-called Bar Kokhba Revolt in the 2nd century AD, Hadrian comes along and he does a lot of major changes. So he not only kicks Jews out of Jerusalem, um, kind of turns the ruins of the Temple Mount into a Roman shrine, turns the location of the Holy Sepulchre into a Roman shrine. He seems to do the same thing in Bethlehem as well. So Christians who may not be entirely diverged from their Jewish brethren at this time, and this is a bigger discussion, they seem to also have fallen under Roman repercussions. And Bethlehem being a site where apparently some, rep some uh, remembrance is taking place for some, some important individual, now has this location where the Church of the Nativity is built turned into a shrine to Adonis. And if you know anything about Adonis, Adonis is one of these, uh, he's a Greek deity who is kind of the so-called rising and dying deity. Um, some people like to say, oh, he's, he's resurrecting. Well, not, not precisely exactly. I mean, yes, but it's more about the agricultural cycle. And this is what the whole Adonis story is, is about, is the, the rising and dying of the seasons. And, you know, in the winter, things are, are not growing. In the spring, in the summer, they are growing and alive. And so he spends half his time in the underworld and half his time alive. And this has many parallels going back to uh, Dumuzi or, or Tammuz and, and Ishtar in, in Mesopotamian literature. And it makes a lot of sense that the Romans would choose to establish an Adonis cult on this location because it seems to be that this is a location where Christians, early Jewish Christians, are coming to remember Jesus. And of course, Romans in in the first century or second century would have likely made a connection between this Christian idea of a, a dying and rising leader, Messiah, with something they were familiar with. And so this brief mention in Jerome, very brief, it's only a last kind of a passing note that that Hadrian does this 
is actually a really important clue that the location that becomes known as the Church of the Nativity is built over a place that's already being remembered by early Christians in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries AD. Yeah, that's, that's such an interesting point. And, and what I like about this, um, this data and, and what you drew out there was it's not just the idea that a holy site gets transferred over to another holy site. In Christianity and in Judaism, holy sites are holy sites because of the God who is on there is the only God there is. And so every attribute of um, that God's character is going to be associated with Jerusalem or uh, other parts as you go through the biblical story. But in other uh, forms of, of religion, whether you want to call it paganism, uh, Greek paganism, or uh, Canaanite paganism, however you want to describe it, the attributes of their divinities have specific characteristics. And what you just pointed out is, is, is really fascinating that they would have this type of, uh, of cult established at Bethlehem. And it parallels or really contrasts with the same thing that happened at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre when you have the establishment of another temple there, uh, this one, uh, you know, to, to the, you know, the king of the gods. And you also, um, just if we're looking at the broader picture of the, uh, the history of religion, are we thinking about how that, how that functions? It's also worth pointing out to many of the points that C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien would make that, you know, this is the myth made fact. You know, that they would talk about how you would have people like Adonis or Persephone or uh, for, for C.S. Lewis, it was Balder, you know, Balder the Beautiful, who is the uh, Norse god of, of, of the sun, who also goes down to the underworld and is, and is going to be reborn again. And that these were signs of uh, that there's the, a the, the trueness, that there's a longingness that people have. Um, that is the myth-made fact in Christianity, and so it's it's very interesting that you would that you would see this that it's not just again a generic um, religious cultic connection, but it's something more specific, and that does not seem like the kind of thing that Jerome would fake. You know what I mean? Like he's not going to say you know they're doing this for these reasons. It's something that makes pretty good sense given you know the the nature of the location of Christ's birth. And the the way that the the Romans relate to it, which also which also points to the fact the Romans kind of understood its significance. Uh, so I think it's a very interesting thing that's often overlooked. Yeah, yeah, and and it really sets the tone then for the tradition because yeah, like you said, can the Romans uh, adopt and appropriate uh, spaces? They don't just necessarily make up brand new new spaces. I mean, they, particularly when they're in, in this climate in the second century, they, they know the, the enemy, so to speak, the Jews that they're dealing with, and they know how to really um, stick it to them, if you will, because they are trying to make a point that Rome is in control. No more of these revolts. You are done. We are in control. We're going to, and so they, they know how to do that and to send a message at any level. And so I think that this is a, yeah, a really good indication of this tradition of this location here. And of course, following that, you have the construction of the Constantinian church in the, the fourth century, which is destroyed then later um, in the, the sixth century during a Samaritan revolt. But then 
uh, after that, Justinian comes and rebuilds it. And basically, if you go to the Church of the Nativity today, you're going into the church that was built in, in 531 AD by Justinian, with some, some slight modifications in a few places. And you can still see some of the remains of the original Constantinian church underneath of it. Now, the yeah, go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say, like, when you walk inside, you literally are walking on the same floor plan, but a foot below your feet, and they've done a great job in the renovation, exposing those mosaic floors that go back to the to the fourth century. And it's it's quite something. You can't do this at other places. Um, you you know, and it's it's quite a distance to go back all the way to the earliest church of of, um, of, of the Church of the Nativity, you can't do it at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre unless you uh, know who to hire as a guide to go into separate rooms to see here and there pieces of Helena's church. But that's why the Church of the Nativity is such an important early witness and early church to early, uh, uh, to early Byzantine um, architecture. Yeah, exactly. And one of the other points that really is is telling and fits in with a, a first century context. So if we go even back, let's come all the way back now to the, the Jesus narrative of, you know, the traveling of, of Joseph and Mary to come to Bethlehem and what a typical Jewish house might be. And we, we saw uh, just, or we discussed it briefly last time about Nazareth and the fact that you often incorporate old quarries or caves or, or other factors into your house and you reappropriate those. And there's some really good information or uh, some good indications that this cave that you can experience in the Church of the Nativity today would have been part of a, a living complex, perhaps even the, the family kind of household of, of Joseph. And there's a lot of really interesting details that we can draw out that, that suggest Joseph is not only from Bethlehem, but that's really where he really is. He goes to Nazareth to get Mary, brings her back, and they're living there in Bethlehem for a time. Actually, the text even tells us at least 40 days for Mary's purification. Um, so it's not like they're just staying in some inn or a small little rented shack room or a, a stable, they're probably staying with Joseph's family and they just don't always have enough room to give birth and or to, to do what they're doing. So um, I don't know, Chris, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, to yeah, I would, I would huh? say a, a few things uh, about this and I, I, we can easily get, get lost in the weeds here, but I, I think that it's an area that uh, both of us are interested in and I think our listeners will be interested in as well. Uh, this this past, uh, I, I gave a lesson recently, and I, I made a list of, you know, all the characters that uh, are always present in, in, our, in our nativity plays that are likely not present in the text and likely not present there. Um, and there, you know, and then those that are likely present that aren't mentioned. And then, of course, the, the, the players that are there, Mary, Joseph, of course, the, the infant, the infant Jesus as he's born and the angels. Um, but it's interesting that the, the list of, of characters that are um, not present in the text uh, often play a dominant role. You know, we're talking about the donkey. Uh, of course, there's no donkey in the text. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't a donkey, uh, but, but it's not mentioned. Um, and of course, we have uh, the wise men or the three kings of Orient are not there um, in, uh, in Luke's telling anyway. They come a little bit later. Uh, and there's always kind of a menagerie of, of animals um, and all that's based upon the understanding that it's that it's happening in a stable which of course the stable itself is not mentioned we just have a reference to a manger more on that in a minute 
But there's an assumption as well that um, this is a kind of a two-person drama, that this is Mary and Joseph, the angry innkeeper who didn't want his Yelp ratings to go down. He didn't want to throw out the Bethlehemites uh, who were, you know, inhospitable. They didn't want Mary to stay at the only uh, Motel 6 at, at Bethlehem. Uh, he didn't want to kick them out. So he said, here's the stable in the back. Uh, none of that is in the text. I mean, none of that is even remotely even hinted at in the text. And so um, the the reality most likely is, is that the birth of, of Jesus with Mary and Joseph took place much as other births would have had happened, uh, not in a hospital, uh, but in the context of, of a home and in the context of uh, people around them that cared for them. Um, I, I think one of the best pieces that we have uh, for understanding this um, this passage is what Mary does for Elizabeth in the preceding chapter. I mean, she literally goes to Judea, um, a, a town in Judea. Tradition says it's it's Ein Karim, which is just south of Jerusalem. Uh, incidentally and ironically, at a hospital, um, uh, there's a big a big Hadassah Ein Karim. Uh, but she visits her cousin or aunt. Um, we're not sure. It just says that they're relatives. And she's presumably aiding her in her last months as pregnancy. So perhaps Elizabeth is is present, you know, uh, a, a town near Jerusalem where Zechariah would have been serving as a priest is quite close to Bethlehem. Perhaps Mary's mother is with her um, in, in Bethlehem. For sure, as Kyle alluded to, uh, Joseph's family is there, which is the whole reason why Joseph is there in the first place. He goes there because it's his ancestral home. And, and I think that leads us to our, um, well, we should say two things here. Two, two points. The text does not say anything about an inn, and it does not say anything about a stable. Um, there's a great article by uh, Stephen Carlson who, who writes and makes the point that the, the that passage in Luke 2, 7, that normally gets translated, and while they were there, the time came for her to give, uh, to give birth, and uh, they, they, uh, she gave birth and, and, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him for them in the inn, something like that. But the word for inn is not inn. It's, it's, it's like really better to be translated as there's no space for them in the room or there's no room for them in the space. It's the same word, kataluma, that we encounter later in, um, in the Gospels in the upper room. It's a, it's a set-aside space, which... Carlson makes the point that this is the place that Mary and Joseph were living in when, when, when they came to Bethlehem. And, and if you see it in that light and you read there's no space for them in the room, it destroys much of the Hollywood sequence of how we understand, again, you know, Mary going into her final contractions, water breaking as they're cresting over the hill, uh, to Bethlehem and, and the angry innkeeper and so on, it, it removes that away from the discussion. And even, you know, the fact that it says while they were there, indicating that a passage of time has gone on. And so I, I think both Kyle and I are in agreement that uh, it's okay if you, if you want to keep the innkeeper in your nativity play, it's okay. Um, but just acknowledge that he's fictitious. Um, <laughs> but, but there's a separate question, and maybe I'll let Kyle comments a bit on this as well. Um, the, 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 you know, there, we, could, we could ask a lot of things, like that passage at the beginning of Luke 2 is, 
is is complicated when we talk about trying to find which census it is for Quirinius, this important character, and Caesar Augustus. We talked about last time that there's a clear contrast between the ruler of the world, Caesar Augustus, making a decree and everyone has to act. Uh, and then we have the king of angels being born in Bethlehem. And it's showing the difference between, between uh, uh, you know, these two types of power and these what, what real power really is. Um, and we'll, we'll save that for a future episode, the question of the census, and there's not easy answers to it. Uh, but one question that I think Carl Carlson brings out is, was Joseph from Nazareth anyway? Um, Kyle, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And this is one that's that's debated amongst scholars because there are some who say, you know, no, Joseph isn't even from Bethlehem because he's labeled as being in Nazareth. Therefore, you know, this is Jesus's hometown where he grows up as a child. Therefore, that's where Joseph is from. Or it could be that Beth Joseph is from a different Bethlehem. We know there's one in, in the Galilee as well, and perhaps even one in Benjamin, as one of our, our good colleagues, Aharon Tavger, has, has just raised the possibility. And so, you know, different views are out there. But again, it, it really comes back to I think in this instance, tradition. And we have really early, really old traditions that associate Jesus's birth with Bethlehem. We have G the association of, of it in the specific location. And I don't see any, any reason to distance Joseph from Bethlehem, particularly when we think about the, the text never says that he, that he's from Nazareth. You could make an equally, if not even better argument that he goes to Nazareth to get Mary and bring her back to Bethlehem because this is his hometown. And when we look at it from a Roman legal perspective, or, or you know, in the case of censuses or sensi, whatever the plural would be, <laughs> um, you can tell how good my Latin is right there. Roman census sci, sensi, um, but not senses, Roman sensi, they, there's no, in, there's no indications that people are to go back to ancestral lands. So if, if you want to say that Joseph is living in Nazareth or is, is from there, you would have to make a case equally as well that he is returning to Bethlehem for some sort of ancestral land holding as part of the census. But what we know from Roman sources is that that's not how they, they work. There's no indications that people return to be accounted for ancestral things. They go back to the place where they own land and or where their family is. And so this is a, a, a case from classical sources, I think, that says, actually, Joseph probably is from Bethlehem. He's returning there because that's where his family is. That's where any of his landholding is. It's just that he went to Nazareth to get this, this wife, brought her back. And then it's only after they kind of go to Egypt and come back that they decide to move to Nazareth at that point. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, that's really fair. I mean, I, I think it, as you as you get into it, there are some issues with all the different interpretations with how you are to approach it. I think what we're getting at is what is the motivation for why Mary and Joseph actually go to Bethlehem? The traditional interpretation is because Caesar Augustus said to and that everyone had to do what he says. And I, I think that there are those um, and I've read you know different commentaries on this. Um, that yes, what you just indicated um, is, is correct. That there's no um, evidence that people would have to go to these different uh, to, to to leave their home. That you know they could they could send 
um, an emissary or they could just go register and come home or whatever it is. They didn't necessarily have to go to these, to these places. Some people suggest it's a Jewish custom that they would want to do that. But even then, there's not really a whole lot of, uh, of evidence for that. And it could be that that's the way it, it is, that, that at this particular one, that they were um, motivated to go. But as Kyle alluded to, and as Stephen Carlson has has argued, if Joseph is actually planning to live or already living at Bethlehem, and he goes uh, to get his betrothed uh, wife, Mary, from Nazareth to bring her back to Bethlehem, it actually makes uh, a lot of it makes a lot of sense. And and if we and here we're, we always have to remember to that we're we, we often present the Christmas story packaging Luke and Matthew together, um, but they're very different narratives that present very different forms of, of information. Um, and as uh, as we as we read Matthew, uh, they're there for a while. I mean, they're they're living in Bethlehem for quite some time, and we have the references in, in Matthew two that talk about you know that you need to leave Bethlehem because um, this danger is coming upon you. And of course, you have the references to the two years old and younger, which could indicate you know that they've been there for as much as two years. But every indication we have from the text is that they're going to live in Bethlehem. And that's even really in Matthew's, um, you know, his view, you know, and it's kind of almost like a surprise that that the Messiah would not be, uh, that he would be from Bethlehem, but that he would also uh, live and grow up in, in Bethlehem and be in the vicinity of, of, of Judah, where, of course, uh, David grew up and lived and would reign from Jerusalem. And so, in some ways, the, the Gospels have their cake and eat it, too. They make it to where, uh, and I think it happened, uh, but they make it to where uh, the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but his his um, his ministry, his his kingdom coming, is going to happen uh, away from Jerusalem in, in 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 Galilee. But it is very interesting. Still, though, many of the um, royal aspects often happen near Jerusalem, um, whether he's whether he's baptized, whether we have a lot of these Old Testament uh, parallels happen in the vicinity of Judea, let's say it that way. And so I would say, I don't know if we'll ever be able to prove that Joseph lived in Bethlehem before he went to get to Nazareth to get Mary, but I think it's certainly a very interesting interpretive option um, that uh, we, should, we should hold out there as, as something to consider. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. I think you know it's always prudent to be to be um, questioning, critical. But I think in this instance, I mean, there's a lot that I think has generally been overlooked that really allows us to come to a better exegetical understanding of the text, but also fits culturally, historically, a, a bit better and, and diminishes the number of of issues that some scholars think are there. Um, yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and I think that the, the key part about this is oftentimes these types of questions are debated in a hostile environment of if it's not this way, then you're destroying the historicity of, of the Bible. But oftentimes, uh, at least I found that there's that there's answers to some of these quandaries by not uh, holding to, um, you know, to, to, you know, with your with your icy grip to a particular point, but just looking at it in a different perspective. And that's how I think archeology span as well as tradition, as well as um, seeing the ancient culture can often provide um, a better answer for how we are to understand, understand the text. But 
there's much more to this story because we're leaving Bethlehem now. We'll be coming back here and there. But what we want to do is ask this question. What do Tiglath Pileser III, Sargon II, and Sennacherib, good friends of Kyle and myself, uh, uh, what do they have to do with Christmas? And the answer is quite a lot. Uh, there's a lot that these kings of Assyria who reigned in the um, second half of the 8th century BC, specifically from 745 BC, I think, to 686 BC, if we were to count all three of these kings with Shalmaneser V mixed in. Uh, these kings uh, are all major players in Israel and Judah at precisely the same time as the writings of Isaiah and Jeremiah, as, as well as, uh, excuse me, as, as well as Isaiah and Micah, um, and, and, and other prophets as well. And as we look forward, uh, even to the end, uh, Jeremiah writing in their prophetic tradition, looking to a final destruction of Judah, also has much to say um, about uh, what life was like in those days, and then making, making prophecies about what will be like in future days. And so we would like to look at several instances in Matthew's gospel, uh, and we're looking at the end of Matthew 1 and Matthew 2, where we have some very interesting prophetic texts that uh, play a role in how we understand the Christmas story. Now, in introducing that in more general way, you we, we could be here a while because Matthew likes play ra'o, you know, let it be fulfilled, you know, that it was written by the prophet, uh, and he uses this a lot. So we're not going to look at all of them, and, and we're not going to look at every aspect of of how we're to understand these Old Testament citations, as well as, you know, you could look at, you know, allusions and echoes and different types of intertextuality that exist between uh, Matthew and, and the Old Testament. But we're specifically drawing our attention to some overlooked uh, aspects of how we're to understand these texts that have direct ties to history, archaeology, and geography of the Old Testament, and how a reader uh, in the first century may have read these. Um, and so that's, that's what we're going to look at in, in the remainder of the podcast. Kyle, do you have any more uh, things to add to that? No, I, I think the only thing that I well, so yes, actually, <laughs> the only thing that I would add no, is that yes. I yeah, <laughs> that I think it is it is so important to to look back, um, and this is what the pro, you know part of the prophetic tradition is is looking back to what has taken place and building upon this tradition, and as we get into the days of Jesus and the, the gospel accounts. I mean, in some ways, the, the some of the gospel authors are, are doing the same thing. They're building upon this tradition. And if we want to see the the true colors of this, or I should say, see this, this what's happening in high resolution, we really need to go back all the way to the eighth century, if not even more, to, to look at what's being what's happening then and what's laying the foundations for what is going to be kind of interpreted or reinterpreted in the days of Jesus. Yeah, it's so good. And it's so fun. That's what we love about it. I mean, I, it's not just that it's, you know, it's it's the right way to look at this. It, it actually adds this this layer of, of place and people and event that makes it really exciting. And so I'm going to read Matthew 1, 23. This is Matthew's uh, uh, giving of the prophecy. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Um, you're familiar with this verse, Kyle, and I'm sure our listeners are very familiar with this verse, and you're familiar with 
the controversy surrounding that third word, virgin, in the original uh, Hebrew and Greek. And I'm sure many are familiar with the debate surrounding who and what was the first Emmanuel, or if there were two different Emmanuels, one being Jesus and the other being a contemporary character in the 8th century. We're going to skip all of that. And what we're going to do is think about where this sign was given and when it was given. And for that, we have to go back in time to the year 734 BC. We need to understand that a new power has emerged in the Southern Levant and really the entire ancient Near East. And his name is Tiglath Pileser III, or as I like to call him, TP3. Uh, Tiglath Pileser III is a powerhouse that is just destroying kingdoms left and right in the Northern Levant and other parts of the growing Assyrian Empire. And two of the main players in the theater of the biblical world are the Aramean uh, king of Damascus, a guy named Rezin, and another uh, king named Pekah, the king of, uh, of Israel. And they have the bright idea, turns out to be a very bad idea, but they have the bright idea that they're going to make a uh, an alliance with uh, a bunch of different states in the vicinity, but specifically they would be the two main players. And the third player that is absolutely vital to their plans to, to withstand uh, Tiglath-Pileser III is the kingdom of Judah, who's reigned by, by all uh, uh, signs a, a really crummy king, a guy named Ahaz. Uh, Ahaz was... Uh, uh, he was king for about uh, you know 16 years or so. He's the bridge between uh, Uzziah, probably one of the greatest kings of Judah, and and Hezekiah. Jotham uh, gets mixed in there. Jo Jotham gets mixed in there uh, as well. But Hezekiah is a much more well-known king. Ahaz is his father, um, which was not a great thing to have as a father because Kings tells us that he sacrificed one of his other sons to Molech. Uh, so luckily, Hezekiah wasn't that son that was sacrificed. But that's the environment in which uh, Ahaz was king. He is being pressured immensely by Pekah and by Rezin to join the fray, so much so that they've given up negotiations and they basically say, we're going to kill you and replace you with what they call the son of Tabil, probably a... Uh, probably a, a royal family member or someone that's going to be a puppet king from, uh, from Transjordan. He's going to be allied with us, and we're going to withstand Tiglath-Pileser III and make this, this nice alliance. So you have all kinds of stuff going on. It's a, a risk board. You know, alliances going back and forth. Uh, and, of course, we know even if Ahaz would have done this, it would have not turned out well because Tiglath-Pileser III is going to destroy everything in his path. So Ahaz is a complicated character. He's one that is really a bad king, a crummy king, but he's actually making probably a wise uh, decision here. Now, why am I giving you all this background? This is supposed to be a Christmas episode. Well, it turns out that Isaiah the prophet, a uh, pretty well-known guy, he visits Ahaz and he tells him that this um, is a good decision. Don't go after these, uh, these kings. Don't follow them. And he does so at a particular place. It says in Isaiah, in the opening lines of Isaiah chapter 7, it says, The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Yashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool 
on the highway to uh, the fuller's field, excuse me, and say to him, take heed, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. That's a reference to uh, to Pekah, because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has plotted evil against you. And he goes on and says, they're not going to win. It shall not pass. And he says that they're going to be destroyed. And he says within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered. And he goes on, it will, it will not stand. And then as Isaiah is giving him this, uh, this, this, this revelation, you know, this is revelation directly from Yahweh to the king of Israel, who's supposed to be a um, you know, the covenant heir of this, uh, of the Davidic promise, as well as the, the shepherd of his people. Um, he says, uh, um, you know, how will I know this? And he goes, I don't even want to hear a sign. You know, Isaiah says, I'll give you a sign to make sure that it's happening. He says, I don't even want to hear it. And Isaiah, what does he say? He gives him this sign. This is where we get, this is where we get the Emmanuel passage. That even though you don't want to hear it, Isaiah says, I'm going to tell you. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It goes on to describe this as the sign for the salvation of Judah against Aram Damascus and uh, and Israel. And we know from not only Isaiah and Kings and Chronicles, but a plethora of um, of, of Neo Assyrian texts that Tiglath Pileser III absolutely whacked both Aram Damascus and, uh, and, uh, and Israel, so much so that Aram Damascus is essentially wiped off the, the, you know, the, 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 the story. Um, it's no longer an Aramean state after this. Um, they're, they're, they're wiped out. Israel is demolished. It only has 10 more years of, of history left to it. Um, we have Pekah, who's, who's, who's destroyed. And so it comes to pass uh, that Isaiah's prophecy is uh, just as he said that that God is destroying the Assyrian, or he uses the Assyrian Empire to wipe out the enemies of, of Judah, and that's where we have the promise. But what's interesting about that is, and again, we could have a lot of discussion. We won't. Um, we could have a lot of discussion about, you know, who is this Emmanuel figure? And of course, both Kyle and I would would, would say it points to uh, for sure the what we have in, in Matthew 1, which is Jesus being identified with this character. And so there, at the very least, it shows that the birth of this Emmanuel and a time which, you know, you, you're, you're, you're suffering major political problems is a sign of immediate salvation. Um, but what's really interesting about this passage to me is that if we fast forward 30 years, uh, 33 years to be exact, we find uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and he is no longer fighting the northern kingdom because it is gone. He is destroying Hezekiah's kingdom. And Hezekiah, unlike his father Ahaz, is a, is a great king. I mean, he's, he's doing all the things that, um, that he, you know, the prophets are calling him to. He is uh, fairly strong, but he also has kind of a similar problem. He wants to make an alliance with various people, Philistines, the Phoenicians, and others. And just like with Tiglath-Pileser III, guess what? It's not working out so well because the Assyrian Empire is extremely powerful. And so what's so fascinating about this is that just after Lachish, is, or when Lachish is being attacked, 
when Sennacherib is there with his armies, it's being besieged. Sennacherib sends three officials. One of them is called, um, in some translations, like a, play, a personal name, Rabshakeh, but it's actually a title, the Rabshakeh, which is the uh, the cupbearer and was a was a, a probably a eunuch and a main official for uh, the Assyrian uh, the Assyrian king and a spokesman for him. We actually have um, stele of a particular Rabshakeh, and they're mentioned often in Assyrian texts. And it says in uh, Isaiah chapter thirty six verses one through three. The king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And there came out from him Eliakim, Hilkiah, and Shebna, and, uh, and Yoah, these three officials. And it's actually interesting because you have three Assyrian officials and three Judahite officials. And it's a whole fun text that we could probably cover sometime where it's just some great trash talking, um, where it goes in and says stuff like, are you going to be the one? You know, you don't want me to speak Hebrew? Rabshakeh tells them. Are you going to be the one to tell them that they're going to be eating their own excrement and drinking their own urine soon? Because if you don't tell them, I'll tell them in Hebrew. Uh, it's just a you know, really fun back and forth. But what is really clear is that this is happening at precisely the same place that Isaiah gave the prophecy to Ahaz before. And so the place is just as important as what's actually happening. And so the salvation that Judah experienced in the unlikely form of Tiglath-Pileser III wiping out uh, Israel's uh, Judah's enemies is now coming there. That, that enemy is once again at their gates and it's, a very same, it's at the very same place. Now where this is, is most likely right outside Jaffa Gate. Recent excavations um, just to the south of Jaffa Gate in the Hinnom Valley, we're talking about excavations in the last 10 years, they revealed a second temple aqueduct. This is from probably the time of Herod the Great that brought water across the upper Hinnom Valley to what we think is the Herodian, uh, where the area of the Herodian Palace is. So if you think back to our archaeology of, of, uh, of Easter uh, episodes, we talked about this, uh, this palace, but that aqueduct, around it were found earlier pools uh, from the Iron Age. And so because the wall of the city um, would have run almost precisely where the wall of, 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 Old Test or, or of the old city of Jerusalem runs today next to the valley, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is likely where the scene of where they are standing. And so you could actually even use the walls of the old city to visualize the uh, officials of, of Hezekiah sitting on the wall as the Rabshakeh comes up with his army and they're having this back and forth. But in the context of Isaiah, he is making the point, he's drawing attention to both of these salvation episodes the salvation of Jerusalem the first time, and the second salvation of Jerusalem a second time. The first one uh, from Aram and Israel, the second one from the Assyrians, they're happening at the same place. And it's, it's really based upon the same prophecy, because if you skip ahead to the next chapter, when Hezekiah goes into the temple and, and cries out to the Lord, Isaiah meets him right afterwards and says, 
you're going to be saved once more. And so it's tying together um, place with with event. And it's using these these signs and, and, and using the, the landscape of Jerusalem to tell this uh, to tell this story. And so this is a good one for me, especially as someone who likes to lead lead tours, because What's the first thing you normally see when you make it into Israel after you you made that drive up Highway 1? You're going into Jerusalem through Jaffa Gate. Well, guess what's right in front of you? Well, you can see Bethlehem in the distance, and you can also see precisely this valley as you're just about to go into the city. Uh, and, and it's a sign that the one of the greatest prophecies we have in the Bible, the sign of Emmanuel, happened within this within this context. Great. No, that's that's. In the- so interesting and, and and again it comes back to the thing a point that we've you know, talked about a number of times is that location matters and when you consider where specific messages are given or words are spoken it, it just adds a whole other level to what is actually happening and what the author wants us to understand or what god might want us to understand and take away from it as well and so i think that this is this is some good stuff so what what else do you have for us chris we got, a next, we got another one. Um, <laughs> we're going to skip ahead uh, to the next section of, of Matthew's gospel. This is Matthew 2, 1 and 2. And the background here is that the three wise men, um, or are there three and are they wise? They're probably men, but, but the first two we're not really sure. The three kings of Orient are, we've talked about. They're, they're, coming, to, um, they're coming to Jerusalem uh, to, to find the king, to find the, 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 the king that must be connected with the star that they saw at its rising. It's a well-known passage, and our goal is not going to, uh, to be to understand every aspect of it, but I would like to look at what does the exile um, of the northern kingdom of Israel, what role it might play in the way Matthew presents his, his gospel, and the way that the, the particularly the text of Jeremiah deals with the exile of the northern kingdom and the role of the book of Jeremiah in Matthew's presentation of Jesus as the Messiah, because he more than any of the other gospel writers draws special attention to uh, the prophet Jeremiah, particularly in these opening chapters. And so I'm going to read uh, these first two verses from Matthew 2. And then we'll we'll comment a few things and then get into some of these uh, possible parallels. In the time of King Herod, this is Herod the Great, who's going to die in 4 BC, reigning from uh, 37 to 4 BC. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, notice there it's specifically not Bethlehem of Zebulun, uh, but Bethlehem of Judea, so this is the southern one, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we have observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. So they're coming, as the text says, to pay him him homage, which would essentially say that we believe this is the one who is the legitimate king of the Jews. Now, in the context there's some very obvious things. Herod the, the Great is literally called King Herod. Uh, we'll know later that he's going to die. And his son, uh, also called Herod, this is Herod Archelaus, uh, who would reign from 4 BC to 6 AD, um, is not a good king either. And it's actually the reason that, that Matthew gives for why Joseph and Mary go to Nazareth. 
So that, that much is clear, and there's a, a, a built-in contrast between King Herod and this child who is to be born, King of the Jews, whom the Magi from the East are, are, are seeking. Now, um, we could, again, comment on a lot of things, such as the star, which seems to be a, a reference, at least implied, back to uh, Balaam's prophecy in the book of Numbers, you know, that a star will arise from Jacob. Uh, Second Temple literature is replete with references to this that see this as something that's clearly messianic. Um, and there's lots of things we could point out regarding the uh, regarding the Magi, their number, where all of that uh, comes from. Uh, the word here is Magi, you know, and it seems to be a term that comes from, from, from Persia. The reference to the East uh, is also interesting. I think Kyle has a few comments on this before I get into the possible connections with Jeremiah. Yeah, thanks, Chris. The the East is one of these terms that's really interesting. I mean, and again, it comes back to what we're envisioning when we think of our little nativity sitting around, and there's always these number one, three kings that are there, um, and they're you know from the East, from Persia. If you have a, a fancy uh, nativity, that might be in some sort of Persian garb. But number one, the the text never calls them kings. This is actually a tradition that only goes back to Tertullian. So it's you know at least a century or so after uh, Jesus, and there's no indication in the text that these were kings. There's also no clear indication how many there, there actually are. I mean, we always have three because there's three gifts listed, but the text never clarifies that there's only three individuals bringing these kinds of gifts. It's just there's three different types of gifts that are being being brought. And of course, there is a confusion then between magi, which is, as you mentioned, a Persian word, and that's why people often think of them as coming from Persia. But if we, we look at the gifts being brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these aren't exactly um, being produced in Persia. And you could argue maybe they're exotic gifts transferred from around and from the Near East. But really, the, the homeland of frankincense and myrrh, and even gold, is, is Arabia, and even the Horn of Africa. And this actually fits nicely with a, a conceptual shift that we see from ancient worlds to ours. I mean, when we look at a map today, we orient up with north. Right is east. But in ancient world, you have to rotate it 90 degrees to your right. So what is kind of up or what is forward? Well, that's the east. What is to your right? That's the south, actually. Yamin, right, right hand, is, is the son of the south. And so there's a whole conceptual shift. And so when the text says that there are wise men coming from the east, is it that that means east as in Mesopotamia, Persia, which would be our east? Or is it saying they're actually coming from the south, which would conceptually be uh, ancient Jewish mindset that is rotated 90 degrees? That, so they're coming from Arabia, where we know these goods are are. Um, kind of grown and manufactured. And of course, if you go through, I mean, there's no smoking gun answer because when the text refers to the East, there's a long tradition about this. It, it's used to refer to Eden. It's used to refer to East of Eden. It's used to refer to the plain of Shinar in Genesis 11. Jacob goes to his people in the East, in Paddan Aram, which incidentally is to the North. Yeah, so so East is North and North is East, yeah, whatever. Other pe people on the other side of the Jordan are referred as being from the east. People from the east, the, the important thing that we can draw out from these references to the east in biblical tradition is that there is 
a sense that the people from the East, whichever direction we say, are respected for their wisdom. And this is actually referring, a referent to many different groups or, or even geographic locations. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's really fair. And what I like about it is the lack of one-size-fits-all um, interpretation for this opens up a lot of possibilities. And what I mean by that is, when it says wise men of the East, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a, a magician or an astrologer from Persia who is watching the stars and coming there. That, that, it, that is an option, um, but it opens up some, some other things that Kyle alluded to. And the authors may be, may be uh, really pulling on, I don't want to say multiple traditions, but have multiple typologies in mind, multiple background elements in mind when they, when they do so clearly. Matthew is juggling a lot of different Old Testament passages when he's when he's when he's doing this, and, and I think a really obvious one um, that Kyle kind of alluded to is is the Queen of Sheba. I mean, in some ways, where you could talk about bringing up precisely these things: gold, frankincense, and myrrh coming to Solomon's court. And of course, that's not uh, Persia; that's uh, that's uh, Eastern Africa and you know, the, the Horn of Saudi Arabia, or in, in the area of, of Saudi Arabia today. And, and that gets reflected a lot in prophetic tradition with, with Sheba and Seba and these, these kingdoms who, who bring these same types of, of, of incense there. And so in, in some ways, the names of these people, um, which you know we have names of them, of course, in tradition, uh, but, but they're not, the figures aren't as important as what they bring and, and kind of what they represent. And what they really represent is that just as the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of, G of, of Solomon, she would come and, and pay homage. And I love that passage in, in 1 Kings, I think it's 1 Kings 8. There's no breath left in her. Um, she, she's just breathless as she beholds uh, the kingdom of, of Solomon. And if those types of things are, are present in the text and, and an author would have, or and a reader would have been you know, paying careful attention to this, What's interesting is that the target of the Solomon background is not Jesus, but Herod. Because where is Herod? You know, he's in Jerusalem. He is the king of the Jews. He's got Herodium. He's got the temple. He has all the things that uh, Solomon had done. And if we're being honest, probably greatly surpassed them, at least from an archaeological perspective. And, and they're there saying, well, where is he? <laughs> I mean, it was a real shot to his, uh, to his pride. Um, and so I, I'm fully on board with, uh, with these ways of seeing the text. And I think in some ways they're, they're front and center, even though we often miss them in our interpretations. I think that they're, they're a part of how we should understand this text and not just see it as how it happened. Like that, that's the problem is we don't know how it actually happened. And the text isn't telling us exactly how it happened. It's, relaying an event that is layered with multiple um, illusions and meanings, and we need to see it in all of its richness to really understand the meaning of the text. And so what I'm saying is that there's, there might be an additional one to these that we, that we can add, uh, but I'll give Kyle if he has something else to, to add to this. No, I think, I think okay. I've said my piece. You said your piece and counted to three. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I'm going to take you someplace that, probably is not expected. Um, and I, even myself, when I was reading this, I was just struck by my lack of 
um, what's the word, uh, lack of knowledge of it, or, or, and I'd read it before, but it, it had, it, it's not one of those places in the, in the Old Testament that we always are kind of plowing through when we're thinking of the history of, of ancient Israel, and it comes towards the end of the book of Jeremiah. There's a section there from Jeremiah 40 through 44 that is actually narrative. It's not, you know, these long oracles against Moab and, and Edom and so on, but it's actually narrating the last days and uh, of the kingdom of, 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 of Judah, the destruction of Jerusalem, and mostly the aftermath of its destruction. And I was just uh, struck by some of the parallels that we can see in Matthew's gospel with these, with these, um, with these narratives in, in Jeremiah 40 through 44. And I'm going to just set the stage here. Jerusalem has been destroyed 586 uh, BC. The, uh, many of the, the uh, members of the royal family, many of, of Judah itself around Jerusalem has been uh, sent into exile. Things are in turmoil. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't you know, actually present, but he's destroyed the city. And they're trying to establish a, uh, a new provincial uh, system and not doing such a great job uh, when compared with the Assyrians, who had much more practice at this um, and, and mixing the populations and establishing their centers. Uh, Jerusalem was not uh, treated the same way the northern kingdom was, where it was systematically exiled, um, the northern kingdom was, whereas Judah, and there's big debate about how much it was exiled, but there's not a deep system in place where you have removal of populations and then uh, the reintroducing of other populations to mix in, in, in the south. And so what's left there is kind of a ragtag group of uh, former members of, of the, the, the establishment of, of, the, of, the, of Jerusalem's court, some members of the royal family, and Jeremiah. And he is recounting these events uh, from these last days until he goes into exile. In, in Egypt. And, and so with that, without further ado, I'm going to read some of this. It says, in the seventh month, this is Jeremiah 41, 1 through 8, Ishmael, son of Netanyah, son of Elishama of the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king, came with 10 men to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam at Mitzvah. Kyle knows a lot about Mitzvah. Tel and Nazbeh, looked at the pottery there, and it's a very important site just north of Jerusalem. As they ate bread together there at Mitzvah, Ishmael, son of Netanya, and the ten men with him got up and struck down Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him, because the king of Babylon had appointed him governor in the land. Ishmael also killed all of the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mitzvah and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. So if you haven't heard this about this event, uh, because it's buried in uh, in Jeremiah and not in some of the historical books. It's alluded to a bit in, in Kings and also in Chronicles, but we have more of the telling here. So essentially what happened is Gedaliah was, was named the governor of this newly established province. We know it later, um, you know, as, as one of the, the sub-provinces of the, of the, the province beyond the, the, beyond the river. And Mitzvah becomes the new capital Mitzvah, north of Jerusalem, it becomes the, the main provincial center, but it doesn't last long. Within uh, literally weeks of the destruction, we have this, this governor assassinated, and the, and the new, I guess, guy in charge is this guy, Ishmael. And then it says, on the day after the murder of Gedaliah, before anyone knew it, and this is where I want us to pay attention, 
80 men arrived from Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria. Now, what's so interesting about this is when we are. We're talking about 586 BC. The northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed in 722 BC. We know very little about what happened there between 722 until we get to the Persian period. We know that people were exiled. We know that there's mixing of populations. But, but what's happening there is, is, is a bit veiled to us from uh, the biblical text as well as archaeology. I mean, archaeology reveals some things, um, but we, we don't have the story to go off of. And so it's really interesting that Jeremiah would point out that these figures from the now long-destroyed, long-exiled northern kingdom of Israel, and these three cities, I mean, they're the most important three, the, the, the two former capitals in one place, Shiloh, where the tabernacle was. In fact, Jeremiah and other places mentions, you know, that, that Jerusalem will be destroyed, it will be abandoned, much like the tabernacle was abandoned at Shiloh. And so these three places would have had uh, sacred centers to Yahweh. We know Samaria did, we know Shiloh did. And they're coming with their beard shaved, their clothes torn, and their bodies gashed bringing grain offerings and incense, and that word there, incense, the same word that we read, of course, in Matthew chapter uh, chapter 2. And if you look at the Septuagint, it's the same, it's the same, same word um, uh, for, for, for Jeremiah. And their point is that they're going to present at the temple of, the, of, of, of Yahweh. They don't know yet, apparently, that the temple has been destroyed, or they're still going anyway to offer their, these, this incense and this, and this grain offering which if you know anything about Old Testament history is really shocking because what do we know about why the kingdom of Israel was destroyed in the first place? It was destroyed because they didn't worship in Jerusalem. They sacrificed on every green hill and they worshiped at Dan and Bethel. And the last word we have on this is 2 Kings 17 is that um, there were lions attacking um, and wild beasts attacking everyone in the former northern kingdom, so much so that they had to ask the Assyrians to send back an old priest from Bethel to teach the new inhabitants how to actually worship Yahweh in the northern kingdom way, or these beasts would keep coming back. And so that's really the last thing we have about, about the northern kingdom. And now there's these, there's these Israelites, which I would call them Israelites, coming to the temple of the Lord, which of course is also the location of the palace of the king of Judah is right beside each other. Uh, Psalm 2, Psalm 110 stuff. You know, Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You know, the, the house of Yahweh beside the house of the king. And so what happens to them? Well, Ishmael, son of Netanya, came out from Mitzvah to meet them, weeping as he came. And as he met them, he said to them, come to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam. Of course, Gedaliah was just murdered. When they reached the middle of the city, Ishmael, the son of Netanya, and, and the men with him, slaughtered them and threw them into a cistern. But there were ten among them who said to Ishmael, Don't kill us, for we have stores of wheat, barley, oil, and so on. So we refrained and did not kill their companions. And so what we have then is this tyrant, Ishmael killing another tyrant, uh, seeming to claim the reins. And uh, when he encounters these righteous Israelites on their way to worship in Jerusalem, and they're from you know three places and they're bringing incense, 
he attacks them and doesn't let them go. Now, I see some, some really interesting parallels between this event in Jeremiah and what we read in, uh, in Matthew chapter 2. Both are bringing offerings uh, to the true king. Both are attacked by uh, this, uh, this figure. The men of, of uh, the northern kingdom, you know, the fallen northern kingdom, they never make it to the house of Yahweh to worship and offer their gifts. Uh, but the Magi do. They actually make it. And it's interesting that uh, Matthew 2 draws out the point that they're in a house, you know, that Joseph and Mary are in a house and you have the child, Jesus, who is worshipped and they give their gifts to him. We also have, um, again, they're, they're, they're threatened. Um, they also are demanded that they return and give information. Uh, later on in the passage, it talks about come back and tell us where your wealth is. Um, the tyrants uh, also are going to uh, murder the rival ruler. Uh, in the case of Ishmael, he murders Gedaliah. In the case of Herod, he is going to attempt to murder uh, uh, Jesus and, and, and murder the infants at Bethlehem. The tyrant would leave. Uh, Ishmael would leave uh, to go to uh, the, the area of the Ammonites. Herod would leave the story. <laughs> he would die. Um, but their replacement, and this is where you know it continues on, is also pretty crummy. Yohanan or Johanan, uh, who takes over this mantle of of you know the the, the royal family in in, in exile, um, he's going to be with Jeremiah from then on, and then Archelaus for the story in in the New Testament. Now, interestingly, Yohanan and Joseph both receive special revelation. Uh, to uh, from Jeremiah and from an angel of the Lord. They're both given revelation about what to do next. Yohanan is told to not go down to Egypt. Joseph is told to go down to Egypt. Uh, Yohanan disobeys. Uh, Joseph does not. And in fact, we have in the story, we have Je Jeremiah himself brought down to Egypt uh, against his own will. And guess where he stops? On the way. Bethlehem. He stops on the way from the area of Mitzvah. He's in the area of Bethlehem when he's brought down to, before he's brought down to Egypt. Joseph, uh, on the other hand, he obeys the angel, but still takes Jesus back to, to Egypt. Now, there's many parallels we could point out there. Uh, the, the main one that, uh, that Matthew wants us to see is Hosea, you know, that out of Egypt I have called my son, and just the way Israel was taken out of Egypt in the Exodus so is Jesus going to prefigure, uh, going to, to typify how, uh, how, how where Israel failed um, as a son, Jesus will, you know, will succeed as a son. But another aspect of this is the role of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was taken forcibly down to Egypt um, uh, against his will, and he was kept there, essentially in captivity. We don't know the end of his story. If he ever returned, presumably he didn't. And so Jesus goes down to Egypt like the Israelites, but also like Jeremiah, the prophet. And Matthew has a lot for us to, to think about when we think about the story of Jeremiah. Uh, Matthew focuses a lot on this particular prophet, and we have unique information um, in his gospel about Jeremiah than we do in the other synoptic gospels. Uh, for one, uh, a few, few verses down, we read another one of these let it be fulfilled passages in Matthew 2, 17 through 18, which says, A voice was heard in Ramah, 
weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted, comforted because they are no more. Now, again, we always have to think about when and where these passages are um, uh, relate to. The when is Jeremiah writing this, 586 BC or so, but he's pointing back to the death of Rachel, which we don't want to put a date on that, but let's say it was really, really early. You know, the, the story of, of, of Rachel dying on the way from Bethel to Bethlehem. She, she dies in childbirth. I tend to think it's right there beside Rama, which fits this, which fits this passage. And where she dies, right, it's just in the north. It's actually close to, to Mitzvah. It's north of, uh, north of Jerusalem. Um, and which is the place where Benjamin is going to receive his allotment. But what's interesting is what she's, is what Jeremiah says is that Rachel is weeping for her children. Well, I could ask you, who are her children? And this is a good Bible trivia question because there's 12 tribes. And it's not just referring to any of the 12 tribes. It's referring to Joseph and Benjamin. And specifically, I would say, typifying the northern kingdom. And if you go back to Jeremiah 31, it's all about Ephraim gone with the promise that they will return. The, the promise that the northern kingdom, which has been gone for a hundred years, will be brought back in again. That they will receive this, this uh, same promise. Now, in M Matthew's telling, it's that part is usually ignored. <laughs> that part of the story is ignored, and it's the focus on the infants of Bethlehem that are that are being killed, and that's an important aspect. But you got to see the full picture. Now, and and if as we look further at the Book of Jeremiah and its relationship, now, Chris, can I interrupt right, for just one second, yeah, just to, sure. to add two things? Um, I mean, number one, I think this just really highlights how well the authors of the New Testament know the Old Testament. And there, I think there's a very conscious effort, number one, to make these connections. They're trying to understand, and you know, in the same way as any other Jewish sect of those of those days, is trying to understand and interpret in a living way these, these traditions they have. So that's one. Number two, while we're, before we, we move on to the next point, um, if you go to Bethlehem today and you go to the Church of Nativity, um, I once was there and I wandered through an open door as I want to do to explore and I ran into a priest and he said, hey, would you like to see the bones of the children murdered by Herod? I said, of course I would. Who, who wouldn't want to see something as macabre as that? And so he leads me into this crypt and shows me this huge open cyst of, of bones and he says, there they are. Those are all the children that, are, that were killed by Herod. Now, of course, this is tradition and, you know, femur bones that are, you know, three feet long and like, I don't think the kids are quite that large, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll let you have your tradition. Anyway, just wanted to share that. If you ever get there, you can go, you can go see these, the remains of these children, which are really not their remains. Kyle, well, maybe this is a evidence of giants. You know, if they were, they were already three foot long, maybe, you know, just think how big they would have been when they grew up. You know, True. So this, you know, so, I, I mean, I will allow for that. Maybe part yeah. of the basketball, the Bethlehem basketball team. Bethlehem basketball team. There you go. No, I, I, I think that what's what's interesting about your point you make is that place plays a big role in this too. And so the idea of references to Rama, the references to Bethlehem, those have a huge impact on the way the author is putting these things together. They come with baggage. 
Um, and so and just a general principle, when you're, when, when a New Testament author is citing an Old Testament passage, what is relevant for you to understand is not just everything you see on the page. What is relevant for you to understand is everything that that text is saying in its original context. And you need to go back to understand what that original context was. And that prophecy itself, as we've just seen in Jeremiah, might actually relate back to another event and then another event. And so you have to keep playing this uh, this chain that eventually takes you back to how it all meshes uh, together. And I would say that the gospel writers, New Testament writers in general, but the gospel writers particularly when they're talking about Jesus, are absolutely amazing at drawing these typologies and parallels together. And one of the, I, I think, real key interpretive uh, aspects of this is, is place. Now, in thinking about place and, and this particular prophet, Jeremiah, Matthew draws on several points. We've, we've talked about the, the parallel of Jeremiah going down into Egypt, just as Jesus goes down into Egypt. There's actually, uh, you know, I've said that, you know, Matthew does this in a unique way. There's actually a pretty clear evidence that he does. In Matthew chapter 16, which is a very famous passage where Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi or in the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he says, who do men say that I am? Who do men say the Son of Man is? And you could look at all the different uh, synoptic gospels and you'd see a list but in Matthew's telling, it says, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, which, uh, and it's one of the prophets, that's what others say. But only Matthew says, others say Jeremiah. He's the only one to add that detail in. He also is the one to, to provide most of these textual allusions. Um, perhaps this was meant to point back to Matthew too. You know, the fact that he is telling us about what, uh, Jesus has done by going down into Egypt. Here he is again back in the land. Perhaps he's, you know, a second Jeremiah. We also have a, a third unique uh, detail in Matthew 27, verses 9 and 10, which is a complex one because Matthew gives the citation formula, you know, that was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled, but then he quotes Zechariah. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a bit complicated. But what's interesting is that in both Zechariah 11 and in uh, Jeremiah chapter 19, we have in this passage, which is about the, uh, the death of Judas, it's talking about the same location. It's talking about this valley of slaughter, field of blood, a place which, gets, which starts to have um, eschatological annotation, uh, connections with um, the place of Gehenna. And it's interesting that he is the only one to, 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 to connect those with Jeremiah. And so I would say that there are several touchstones that um, Matthew brings out that are, are quite unique to him to, to Jeremiah. Okay, one more, one more, and I know we're running long, uh, but um, uh, you've waited, if you've waited this long for us, um, uh, you, you might as well hear this one. Now, to preface this last bit, I'd like to uh, read a little bit from, you know, different myths that I've been hearing, different, you know, church stuff that you hear thrown out there. Um, you know, look, I, I want to be careful here and say this. I'm always happy when people want to use ancient Near Eastern culture, background, archaeology, geography, virtually everything we do here on Biblical World podcast to inform how they read scripture, but there's always 
um, uh, a need to use uh, critical thinking uh, and to examine your sources. Now, in this case, what I'm talking about is something that I keep hearing all over the place, and Kyle said he's heard it too, that somehow has got become mainstream in terms of church culture, and it's often said that uh, there's a new archaeological discovery about it. Now, what I'm referring to is the site of Migdal Eder, um, which I, I agree is a, it was a site near Bethlehem. But the story goes something like this, that uh, according to uh, archaeological evidence, according to tradition, that the site of Migdal Eder was where all the lambs for the temple sacrifices were kept, um, and which would, there would be hundreds of thousands of these sheep for needing for, for Passover. And at some point during the uh, the year, as you led up to Passover, they would find the unblemished lambs among this big flock, and then they would wrap these um, these lambs in swaddling clothes and place them in a manger. Um, which, of course, that's uh, the point where you're supposed to say, "Ah, now I get what Matthew was doing there, or Luke was doing." Uh, now I understand it all. Um, but when you look closer. Uh, virtually none of that is true. Uh, none of that actually fits anything with what we know from uh, the sources. Now, we could uh, point to some things. Um, I would just simply say, if you examine the original source from where the assumption is that Migdal Eder was the place where all of the sacrificed lambs for Passover were, it actually comes from the Mishnah, and it says really nothing about that. What it says in, uh, in Shekalim of the Mishnah 7.4, it says an animal that was found between Jerusalem and Migdal Eder or a similar distance in any direction, the males are considered burnt offerings. The females are considered peace offerings. Those which are fitting as a Pesach offering, uh, as Pesach, Pesach is Passover, if it is 30 days before the festival. Now, there's really two things we should point out there. One, it's an interesting text, no doubt. We don't know, though, that it actually represents, uh, you know, 150 years before what it would have looked like, because this is written sometime in the second and third century uh, AD, so it's long after the events of the first century, but let's even say that it does. What the text is actually saying is that the sheep for sacrifice that you get have to be within a distance of Jerusalem of something like five or six miles, not that all the sheep come from Migdal Eder. So it's actually essentially drawing a radius circle around Jerusalem of five or six miles, showing that the sheep in this distance were the, the sheep that were specifically designed for the Passover sacrifice. And so we have a, a late tradition that may or may not be um, uh, real, and we have a reference to Migdal Eder which we agree is somewhere in the area of Bethlehem. And, but it, it doesn't say that only from Migdal Eder, and it says nothing about lambs being wrapped in swaddling clothes. Um, and that's how you know the shepherds knew that this was the Passover sacrifice. They didn't know. Remember, like, what did they just see? They saw the armies of heaven, and they said, let's go kick Rome's butt. Like, let's go do it. That's, that's the whole point. Uh, they didn't know that it was uh, a sacrifice. In fact, it's hidden. You look in that next passage in Luke 2 when, when Mary visits uh, Simeon and he says he will be uh, for the rising of falling a many in Israel uh, and, a, and a sword will pierce your heart also. Those are like the first indications 
that nod is all that will that that we see. You know that there's going to be more to this story, uh, and so I think that I appreciate the, you know, the, the idea of where this comes from. But critical thinking is important. Let's just and, put it that way. and let me let me add one thing too, just as far as chronology goes, for trying to think about who is there and when they're there. You know, again, we we know that Joseph and Mary take Jesus to Jerusalem to be dedicated. We have the passage there with Simeon as well. Herod's nowhere to be around. It's not as if he's actively searching and they brave the the torrents of, you know, now this newfound knowledge from the, the wise men that we're still going to go to Jerusalem. And, well, no, probably the wise men haven't even been there yet. Herod doesn't know about any fulfilled prophecy and they're doing Jewish tradition. And so it kind of um, gives a, a little insight into uh, the, the I think, the chronology and the, the breakdown of what's happening. Yeah, it's such a great point. And that's also, too, why it's okay to combine Luke and Matthew and trying to tell a story. But you have to first be careful to understand what they're saying in their own context and use the text that they're using to recreate it before you go and try and synthesize it. Uh, okay, so what does all this have to do with, with Migdal Eder? You know, what is this place? Well, a couple years ago, I wrote a paper on uh, Rachel's tomb, which was so fun, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, and Kyle's still going to give me comments on it at some point. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, it's a really It'll fun be an early topic. Christmas gift, It'll but I'll, I'll give you comments. Yeah, I mean, I should say that uh, you know, this happens quite a lot with both of us. Uh, but, but in any case, it was a fun topic that led me in a bunch of different directions about the question of where Rachel's tomb is, and maybe we can do a podcast on that in the future. But one of the places that I spent some time on was this, this location of Migdal Eder. And the reason why it comes up is because in Genesis 35, 19, we read that Rachel died. She was buried on the way to Ephrat, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder, which is in Hebrew, Migdal Eder. It's a, a proper place name. So it shouldn't be translated as the tower of Eder. It should be Migdal Eder, which is precisely what we saw in the, in the Mishnah. Uh, that's an important detail. I think all it's really saying in, in the question of Rachel's tomb is that they're traveling from, uh, from Bethel to Bethlehem. She dies on the way, and it just kind of indicates where they, where they end up at the Tower of Eder. This is where Reuben tries to replace his uh, his father and things do not go well for Reuben. Uh, but in any case, we'll, we'll leave that on the side. The other reference we have- what, can, to, I, can I jump in with just yeah, one other comment, just for the, the meaning of Mignal Eder. So if you translate both words, it's you know the Tower of the Flock, which is also interesting because Rachel, the name, means you as well. So there's a whole lot of uh, extra material going on here that we we lose in English translations, whether we're saying the Tower of Eder, Migdal Eder, it's the Tower of the Flock. There's a reference to, you know, sheep, goat, flocks. Rachel's name means you. And <clears throat> I think this underlies some of the later traditions as, as well that are that are being played upon. Yeah, I think that's it's a great point. And it's something we often miss if, we, if we're not paying attention to the to the original to the original languages. Now Specifically, how does this relate to Christmas? Well, it turns out that Migdal Eder is mentioned in a very famous, uh, very famous prophecy, the prophecy of uh, of Micah. And you might say, "Well, I don't remember that in Micah five two, and, and and you you don't see it in Micah five two, but you see it in what precedes Micah five two. And this is an area that I think 
or textual criticism and paying close attention to the text can help us. Uh, Micah 4, 8, and I'm going to read to you uh, from, uh, this is going to be the NRSV. This it says, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of daughter Zion, to you shall it come, the forever, the, excuse me, the former dominion shall come, the sovereignty of daughter Jerusalem. Now, the, the, the problem with this text, and it really, again, should be, and you, O Migdal Eder, is it, it, it's related to that second line, hill of the daughter of Zion. Um, because the word there in, in Hebrew is the word ophel, which is the word that we most associate with a particular place in and around uh, you know, north of the city of David. At least that's the way it is interpreted. And so it would actually kind of indicate that Migdal Eder was at Jerusalem, that it's just another name for Jerusalem or perhaps somewhere in its immediate vicinity by reference to this ophel. But then I looked closely at the, uh, at the Septuagint, and it turns out in the Septuagint, we have the word instead of uh, the word for ophel or here uh, or hill, we have the word which means dusty. In Greek, it's alp a, uh, excuse me, alp, alp modes, um, which is the word for, for uh, dusty or, or dry. And so that led me to the suggestion that the original text, all it really had instead of uh, ophel was the word ophar which in the word for Ophar is the name dust. So it actually should be read, and you dusty tower of the flock, or we should say, and you dusty Migdal Eder. Now, this is interesting for a number of different reasons. One is that this is exactly what Micah does earlier in his, uh, in his book in Micah 1 in a, a really nice section of puns associated with place names. And he specifically says, Roll yourself in the dust, Beit La Afra. Afra means dust. So he's saying, you people from dust town, roll yourself in the dust. And here he's talking about a dusty town. And he's referring to the kind of realities of where Migdal Eder was, which is on the edge of the Judean wilderness. Uh, again, it could actually be Bethel itself, or excuse me, Bethlehem itself, or more, more likely a site in its immediate vicinity. And so when we add that, what it's actually saying about in Micah 4.8 is exactly what it's saying in Micah 5.2. It's a reference to Bethlehem. And it says, um, it says as, as you read forward, O uh, Migdal Eder, or I should say Dusty Migdal Eder, daughter of Zion. So Bethlehem is itself a daughter of Zion, you know, a, a surrounding settlement. To you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, the sovereignty of daughter Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? The pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go forth from the city and camp in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There Yahweh will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. And it talks about how um, nations are gathered against them and they're being brought before as sheaves to the threshing floor. And it says, Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in people in pieces many peoples. You shall devote their gain to Yahweh, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now you are walled around with a wall. Siege is laid against you. With a rod they strike the ruler of Israel upon the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephratah, who are one of the little clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, 
whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of the kindred shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. And so all of that is the prophecy. Like, it's not just Micah 5.2. It's, it's that whole section. And what it's talking about, again, if we go back to the historical background, is Sennacherib has just come to Jerusalem. He's just come into Judah. He's essentially wreaked havoc among, uh, among in Micah's day, Isaiah's day, Hezekiah was king. And it's seeing just the devastated landscape. And it's pointing us back to a great conqueror, a great king, who was from Bethlehem, you know, David. And it's saying that there will be one who comes from, from Bethlehem. And it's pointing to a time in which that, you know, a future date in which that will actually occur. But it's not just some stray verse in Micah 5, 2 that's making the point. It's the whole, the whole thing that we read in this section from Micah 4, 8 on down through Micah 5, 5. And all of these features refer to a, a conqueror, someone who will defeat the enemies and the enemies that they have uh, at that time are the Assyrians. And, and so when, again, when Matthew writes this, he's imagining what it must have been like to live then and get this promise. And he's saying all that's relevant then, but it's relevant now because this, this conqueror, this king born in Bethlehem, he's here and he's going to defeat the same types of enemies that they faced in the days of Sennacherib. And he ties together all this history that we've been talking about till now. And he puts that on the figure of, of Rome and specifically in this passage of, of, of King Herod. And so again, paying careful attention to where these texts take us can yield some really interesting ways of seeing what the authors are doing. Yeah, that is that is awesome, Chris. And I think there's there's you know so much more. I would just add one thing, and then I think we probably should wrap up here. Is that um, um, otherwise we just keep going because there's so much more we could do this. What, but you know, I think there is a clear parallelism in in the uh, chapters four and five of Micah. So Micah four one to four eight, ending with this first reference to the Migdal Eder and kingship coming there from Jerusalem. And then that's paralleled by Micah 4, 9 to 5, 2, which also ends in a reference to Bethlehem receiving uh, or having a place from which a king is coming. So there's a, these, these two segments are actually parallel verses where you see a shift, kind of a summary of Israel's history and a shift from the, the um, what is known and what is regarded as the place, i.e. Jerusalem, for kingship and exposure to God, all that's going to shift. It's going to move to some other site, i.e. Bethlehem, at some point in time as well. And so I think that, you know, this is another layer to the, the structuring of the text that we could talk about. And within that, you you see a summation of Exodus through Leviticus. You've got uh, a foreshadowing, even Micah 4, 10 through 13 shows up in a lot of what's being talked about in Revelation 12. And there's just such richness in the text when you really delve into it and have a good sense of, the the context the the broader history and even the geographical context so i just want to add that but yeah, yeah. i think it, i think that's that's so important and you know i i give the i guess i'll give the final word here before we before we quit i i would say that 
you know, the question is, would readers get this? Would readers go back and and be able to connect with all this information? And, and, and I think the answer is an absolute yes. And maybe I would just close with a, a quick reference to John 7. In John 7, Jesus is in, the, in, in Jerusalem and he's interacting with, um, you know, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so on. And he's having this debate. And, and, and John gives us, you know, this inner dialogue that's existing in verse 41. He said, others said, this is the Messiah. But some asked, surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? Like that presupposes that they know the Messiah has to be from somewhere else. And they even say, you know, John doesn't give us a nativity. He starts, <laughs> he starts by saying there is no nativity. <laughs> you know, in the beginning was the word. Um, but, then he, but, but then he tells us that in this passage that he knows where Jesus is born. He says in verse 42, uh, of, of chapter seven, has not the scriptures said the Messiah, that's the Christ, is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived. So there was division in the crowd because of him. He's showing that he knows that Jesus is from Bethlehem. He, so he, he either knows about Luke two or or Matthew, or Matthew two, um, but he certainly knows that, John does. But he also shows that this is what everybody was expecting, that there would be a messianic figure born like David in Bethlehem. And it was it was a, a widely known point. And the reason why for that, of course, is, is Micah 5, as well as many other passages you could point to where the promise is that there will be a new king like and even better than, uh, than David. And so I think that shows that just as we should pay careful attention to the Old Testament context and places in which these uh, uh, prophecies were given, that the readers and authors of these passages were doing precisely that. They were, they were, they were, they were paying close attention. And so, in some ways, as we look at the openings of the story of the Gospels, the answer is, of course, to look ahead to the end and to look ahead and beyond the end. And we and we still wait to the end of of where, where everything will be really new in the second coming with with the conqueror finally unleashed. Uh, but we also have to look back to how they would have understood these uh, these passages. And, and the answer is clear that they did. They, they understood the, the context quite well. So um, in any case, I think that's it for archaeology. I don't know if I'm gonna call it archaeology. I mean, it's the archaeology and text of Christmas, but we did talk about a lot about archaeology and history. Uh, Kyle, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, and thank you for listeners for for listening. Um, we hope that you guys have enjoyed listening to the, this series as much as we did talking about it and and making it. So, until next time, we will we'll keep recording fun episodes. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.